Thank you all for coming out tonight. Really appreciate it. Good to see so many familiar faces, wonderful students, friends, parishioners, our new friends and sisters. Just so you you, um, just have a sense of the evening, um, Sister Joseph Andrew will uh, start us off with a talk, probably be about 45 minutes. Uh, And then after that, we'll transition into our time of adoration and prayer. And everyone is invited to stay for that. Uh, Last year when we did this, we had uh, uh, so many wonderful uh, Protestant students came out and joined us and came for the talk, and they were very inspired, and they said, all right, it's time for adoration. Twenty-five students got up, and they walked out the door. (laughs) So um, uh, you're certainly welcome to do that again if you like, Uh, but we do invite you uh, in to share this beautiful time of prayer and meditation uh, and intimacy uh, with our Lord so it's been a real joy to have the sisters here. Uh, they came in last night uh, for dinner uh, over at the Ortiz house. And I have to say, it, t- very joyful but utterly exhausting. The sisters are so happy. It's just overwhelming. <clears throat> and so they, when they left, my wife and I and son just collapsed and slept, slept like babies. They haven't slept this well in months. It was really wonderful. Uh, But Sister Joseph Andrew um, uh, came like a tornado to Hope College um, last year at some time and just called me up. Or no, it was when your sisters called me up and said, Sister Joseph Andrew's on campus. Can you meet with her? I said, "Uh, yeah, sure. Um, And she burst in my door and uh, gave me a big hug and said, you know, what's going on here? And Father McConey tells me there's lots of Catholic stuff and what's going on? And so I told her and I said, well, then you have to come out and visit us. And she said, absolutely. And let's get it on the calendar right away. And so we got this on the calendar and she's been excited for eight months. Um, And and, it's been unabated. I mean, the number of exclamation points never went down since then. What's also nice when you email Sister Joseph Andrew that it's her email, so you can email her if you want, is her initials, which is S-J-A-B, Sister Joseph Andrew Bogdanovich, um, which is S-Jab, you know, which is very um, very fitting because uh, she is very punchy, as I think you'll see tonight. But Sister Joseph Andrew, for those of you who don't know much about her, is... Um, one of the four foundresses of the wonderful, wonderful community out in Ann Arbor of Dominican Sisters, Mary, Mother of the Eucharist. Uh, and that community, uh, when it began, was a community of four, and that was 19 years ago. And now it's a community of 120, and they've burst the bounds of their big house, <laughs> and now they're moving down to Texas. There's lots of land down in Texas, so they are going to take over down there. Um, And I think one of the reasons that their community has experienced such exponential growth is uh, because of the witness of Sister Joseph Andrew and and the other foundresses. But one of the things you certainly uh, experience when you're around these sisters is just the joy, and the joy that comes from uh, living a life in the spirit, you know. And I definitely get that sense every time I talk to her just filled with the Holy Spirit, just someone who's utterly obedient to God's will. And I think when the sisters encounter that, they say it speaks to their hearts, and I think that's the reason that this community um, has grown so quickly. And that's why I wanted her to come to Hope and to share a word of hope uh, with our students, with our community here. 
And so um, Sister Joseph Andrew tonight is going to be uh, giving a talk entitled Heroic Witnesses in the Third Millennium. If tempted, everyone can be a hero. Would you please join me in welcoming Sister Joseph Andrew. These introductions are getting to be better and better. I think I'm staying. <laughs> You've done it. You've convinced me. Okay. Really, um, I, the first thing I do want to say is my sisters and I have loved every minute of being here. And who wouldn't be joyful? I mean, you know, it really is such a very special place. And uh, it's one of those things I was I was telling um, the sisters and some of the students that even talking in the... Um, the, the large chapel for only 10 minutes this morning that as I was looking at it, this sea of people and, you know, the choir looked filled and, the, you know, the, the floor was. And, and I thought this must be kind of like the way God looks at the world. And he sees all these wonderful people gathered to love him. And, and all he can do is just smile and go, oh, my gosh, this is just so beautiful. And I said, so, you know, all the people down here are kind of like us still trodden the earth, and those are the choirs of saints, I guess, in the, in the, in the choir. So I think um, everybody's going to head to the choir the next go-round. But in any case, <laughs> I do have to say I, I love the thoughts that I'm going to be able to share with you this evening, and I hope that you will, too, and that they will um, say a lot to you. Um, there's, it's a very special title, and, and you'll learn why as, as the talk goes on. But again, heroic witnesses in the third millennium. If tempted, everyone can be a hero. Okay, because heroes aren't born, they're made. And how so? And what's the criteria for a real hero? You know, I think if we ask the world at large or... or um, you know, our own American citizens, fellow citizens, we would hear names such as maybe athletes or Hollywood stars or, um, you know, models or, or whoever as heroes. And, of course, we would step back from that and say, do they really deserve the title of heroic or heroic witnesses? And, um, I think we should uh, give some real consideration to what we, what we are hearing and, and where we are going with the people that we raise up as our models, basically, in the world today. And so I want to um, mention some because I said in the third millennium. So the first one I'm going to just talk a little bit about is James Foley Wright. James Wright Foley, actually. And he was born on October 18th, 1973. And he died about August 19th, 2014, because, of course, we don't know for sure. And even to mention his name, I think, conjures up some emotion in all of us. I mean, how could it not? He's an American journalist and video reporter. And he became more widely known on April 5th, 2011, when he was abducted with two other Americans uh, by Gaddafi forces and beaten unconscious. And 44 days later, he was released. I think that's a very interesting thing that happened. And then if we follow him as life continues, his life continues, he goes back in the Syrian civil war to this war-torn country and again is taken on November 22, 2014. 
And he becomes, as we know, the first American citizen to be killed by the Islamic State of Iraq. And when you're hearing this and um, you're imagining this young person making these decisions, what kept coming back to me was, okay, in his days of freedom between these two imprisonments, did he make any statements or say anything that in any way would give us a, a greater look into the character of this man and how he made his decision to go back. Remember, he was beaten unconscious. He was held in captivity 44 days, and then he gets free, and he goes back. So interestingly, in this particular year, he did give an interview to the Marquette University magazine. And I was just at Marquette about two and a half weeks ago and brought up his name to the students there. And they all smiled and said, yes, he's, he's one of ours. And I said, do you really um, greatly admire him? And they said, Sister, how could you not admire someone who put his life at stake for what he believed in? And I'm like, that's a, a, good, um, a good phrase for a hero. But at any rate, what he himself wrote, and these were circulating when I was, was there in the magazine. I'm going to quote from him. Marquette University has always been a friend to me, the kind who challenges you to do more and be better and ultimately shapes who you become. That's a beautiful definition of friendship. Challenges you to do more and be better and shapes who you will become. With Marquette, I went on some volunteer trips to South Dakota and Mississippi And I learned that I was a sheltered kid, and the world had real problems. Very wise statement. I came to know young people who wanted to give their hearts for others, and later I had to volunteer also. But Marquette was perhaps never a bigger friend to me than when I was imprisoned as a journalist And each day brought increasing worry to him that, as he said, my mom would panic. And I think I would have said that I would die. (laughs) I'd be beaten again. This isn't going to be pretty, you know. That my mom would panic. I I find this really interesting. He continues, I began to pray the rosary. You know, this rosary. He said, it's what my mom and my grandmother would have done. Never underestimate the power of parents and never underestimate the power of good friendships in college and elsewhere. And he says, it took a long time to count off a hundred Hail Marys on my knuckles. I want to say, Jim, a rosary has about 53. I don't know where you got your hundred, but that's okay. It's okay. Maybe you prayed several. Took him a long time, he says. And then he continues, one night, some guards brought me out of my cell, and they asked if I wanted to call my family. I prayed, and I dialed. Mom answered the phone. Mom, Mom, it's me. It's Jim. Jimmy, where are you? In Libya, Mom. I'm so sorry about all this. And then I told her I was being fed, and I was getting the best bed and being treated like a guest. And those who were released, who had been in captivity with him, 
had said he really was getting the most difficult treatment of all because somehow they couldn't break his spirit. He continues, Mom, listen to this. And then she said, Jim, are they making you say these things? No, Mom, I've been praying for you to know that I'm okay. Haven't you felt my prayers? Jimmy, so many people have been praying for you. All your friends have been calling, and then she started to cry. They're having a prayer vigil for you at the college. Don't you feel our prayers? I do, Mom. I feel them. And later I thought and thought about that. He continues, I've replayed that call hundreds of times in my head. My mother's voice, her knowledge of our situation, her absolute belief in the power of prayer. I knew I wasn't alone. If nothing else, he says, prayer was the glue that enabled my freedom and interior freedom and then later, the miracle of me being released from captivity in a regime that had no real incentive to release me. It didn't make any sense that they would do so, but prayer made sense. There's a lot of faith coming through here. And what we, of course, later came to learn was on, upon his second imprisonment, The captors filmed the last moments of his life in a kneeling position with his hands behind his back. And as our dear friend, Father McConey, um, said to me, you know, I like to think that in those last moments, he was counting those Hail Marys again on his knuckles. Isn't that powerful? And Pope Francis, we know, phoned Foley's family with his condolences and then Marquette University set up a scholarship in his honor. It wasn't all that long ago, was it? And as these vicious headlines and threats stormed across the Internet to really make division and dehumanization almost all too easy, the true believer could only respond in the likeness of Foley's last position, kneeling in prayer. Then came the evening news, September 2nd, 2014. Another video, another ghastly beheading of an American. And this one, a strong believer in the Jewish faith, Stephen Sotloff. And he cherished his secret Israeli citizenship. Whenever possible in Syria, he would pray in the direction of Jerusalem. And I love this. He even faked stomach aches on Jewish fast days so that he would not have to eat. He was no stranger to suffering. His grandparents were Holocaust survivors. I'm sure he grew up hearing some of their stories and knowing inside himself, when my opportunity comes, I will do something for people suffering like this. One of his best friends said he gave a voice to people who did not have a voice. Stephen ached when he saw others suffering. What a beautiful line. What a tribute. 
So on a message that he wrote and gave to a prisoner who was um, to be released, he wrote, please know I'm okay. Live your life to the fullest and fight to be happy. Fight to be happy. Good words. His final note, written three months before his death, carried these words. Everyone has two lives. The second begins when you realize you only have one. Think of the wisdom of that. We're born and we can take it for granted. But when we realize we have one chance at life for all eternity, it's like a second life begins because it's very real and it's very challenging, and we want it to be the best. And he continues, stay positive and patient. If we aren't reunited here, he says, my hope is God will be merciful enough to reunite us in heaven. What faith. So I kind of ask, do we view these men as heroes in our world today? Would they... Typical American, view them as heroes. Would, is this, um, are these just two of the many, many possible people we could refer to capable of being named heroes? So then I thought, well, that's going to be interesting if we're discussing this. Let's go to a dictionary and see what the dictionary says a hero is. How would they describe it? So I went to good old Oxford Dictionary. Get this. This is the definition. A person, typically a man, that's what Oxford says. (laughs) I think I read it, I don't know how many times, 20, anyway. Who is admired or idealized for courage, outstanding achievements, and noble qualities. Well, that's beautiful. But, I mean, typically a man, you know, I really could have given a lot of women as you Good men would already be able to give a lot of good women, too, for this. But I found this interesting, so it continued. This is still Oxford. Quote, the chief male character in a book, play, or movie, who is typically identified with good qualities, with whom the reader is expected to sympathize. Isn't that interesting? So then I went to Merriam-Webster, and I looked up, I didn't want to look up hero again, I looked up heroic, you know, what would we consider as a heroic action of some sort? And Merriam-Webster says that conduct especially exhibited in fulfilling a high purpose or attaining a noble end. I like that. But if we go back to ancient Greece, didn't they have their heroes? And... It was someone in moral excellence. Get that word, moral excellence. So in classical antiquity, we have heroes such as Heracles and Achilles and on and on and on. But moral excellence is important. So then I ask again, or only those that are tempted can become true heroes? If a poll was taken in America today and just said, in the history 
who do you think are the heroes? Now, you can think of who you'd put first and probably second and third, and you could go on with your list. Let me tell you what America said. This is a poll that's about a year old now. Number one in America for the heroes got the most votes, Martin Luther King, Jr. Number two, Nelson Mandela. Number three, Gandhi. Four, Leonardo da Vinci. I'm like, who did they ask? I mean, you know, not that I have. I, Yoo-hoo, I think we're missing somebody. Five, Abraham Lincoln. Six, Jesus. Six. Six. I could go on and on and on and on and on. Sixth place, Jesus. They thought about him, but they put him in sixth place. Seven, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. At least Jesus beat him. (laughs) Really? You can look this up, and the list goes on and on. I'm going to give you 12. Eight, George Washington. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Okay, well, I mean, nine, Albert Einstein. Ten, Alexander the Great. Who in the world is thinking? Anyway, 11, William Shakespeare. And 12, Michelangelo. And then it goes on and on, but I thought that's sufficient. Jesus, sixth place. Oh, we've got a lot to do. So, you know, I think portions of this are kind of interesting to me and probably to you. But I thought this is kind of what we might call a moral selfie today of Americans. This is a look at us. Hmm. And at this point, I want to take a bit of a diversion since we are at Hope College and mention what I think is, is um, some heroic lessons for you connected with this incredible college. I could certainly add a ton more as of our day and a half here, but... Um, you know, hope was born. It's, it's, it's easy for us to forget in 2015. It's easy to forget that life in western Michigan's wilderness was really hard in the 1800s. And it took a harsh toll, obviously, on many settlers. I would not have been a good settler around here at all. Many died, and they left a great number of orphan children But one man stepped to the plate when he saw these orphans, Reverend Van Ralt. Is that the correct pronunciation? And he donated land for an orphanage on 12th Street. But this is beautiful, too. When that became known, the people started saying, we need to take in these children. And they began taking in the orphans. So the orphanage was not needed. Instead, a pioneer school was opened with the support from the Reformed Church in America because they wanted to educate children with a Christian base, unlike state-supported schools. And the history goes on, and there are many, many struggles, of course, including the catastrophic fires, and you probably know some of this. But eventually, this college was opened. And it took its name and seal from the Reverend's 
favorite meditation in Hebrews 6.19, which, of course, is, This is my anchor of hope for this people in the future. Little could he have seen what is going on in this campus today. This is my anchor of hope for this people in the future. And, of course, your motto, taken from Psalm 42, verse 5, echoes the same sentiment, spera in Deo, hope in God. You know, if you, if you could just get that out all around the, the, the world and people could remember, again, your responsibility is, is great. So in May of 1866, the college received its charter from the state of Michigan and graduated its first eight seniors. Isn't that neat? And then it went co-ed in 78, and four years later graduated the first female students. And you are part of this amazing history. You are the future that the Reverend saw um, back in the 1800s. I think it's important for us to realize how good we've got it and those who suffered that we would have it so good today and to really appreciate that heroic witness. So we're going to return to the challenging title, I think, of of our thoughts this evening, Heroic Witnesses in the Third Millennium. If tempted, everyone can be a hero. Do you agree with that? If tempted, everyone can be a hero. If you don't agree with it, then perhaps you will know where I'm um, heading with this. And if you do, then you know in a different direction where I'm going to be heading with this. So in any case, I just want to tell you that it's actually a misplay of words taken from that great British writer and philosopher and poet um, and that Christian apologist and fantasy maker and closet detective, G.K. Chesterton. And it was actually a mistake when I read it, but I liked the mistake better than what he wrote. And he wrote it in a book named Heretics. And what he wrote, which is lame compared to what I think I translated out of this, he said, all men can be criminals if tempted, all men can be heroes if inspired. Well, that's pretty obvious, don't you think? So I like mine better. If he thinks he is the master of paradox, I got one up on him, I think. If tempted, all men can be heroes. Okay, let me tell you about the, where this quote comes from. As I mentioned, it's from a, his book, Heretics. And this is one of his, I think, wittiest collection of essays. And he's really writing it the turn of the 20th century. Um, he's writing it to kind of poke fun at those who feel they're very superior compared to the poor conservative-type people you see. So he pokes fun at luminaries such as Rudyard Kipling and George Bernard Shaw. You know, he loved to poke fun at him, and vice versa, and H.G. Wells, and one Goldsworthy Lowe's Dickinson. I hadn't heard of him either. Lived from 1862 to 1932, a British political scientist and philosopher at Cambridge University. I'll quote what Chesterton is saying to Goldsworthy Lowe's Dickinson. You really have to listen to this. I accuse Mr. Lowe's Dickinson and his school of reaction. If he likes, let him ignore these great historic mysteries. 
the mystery of charity, the mystery of chivalry, Christianity with a surer and more reverent realism says that all men are fools. This doctrine is sometimes called the doctrine of original sin. Isn't that brilliant? It may also be described as the doctrine of the equality of men. But the essential point of it is merely this, that when whatever primary and far-reaching moral dangers affect any man affect all men, we're all in this together. All men can be criminals if tempted. All men can be heroes if inspired. But if we do revive and pursue the pagan ideal, we will end where paganism ended. I don't mean in destruction. I mean we will end in Christianity. Go, Chesterton. So I stand by my paradox. If tempted, everyone can be a hero. Because I think that there are few, if any, heroes that have not been made in the rich fields of severe temptation. And I think that's appropriate to our world today. I'm going to give you a few more examples. The first is almost a duo. In fact, it really is a duo. Because history shows it's very difficult to separate the friendship of Pope St. John Paul the Great with his successor, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. And in a book, alongside John Paul II, friends and collaborators tell their story, Benedict says this about Pope John Paul the Great. Quote, Deep spirituality and courage to uphold truth were clear signs of his sainthood. John Paul II never asked for applause. He never looked around. He never worried how his decisions would be received. And this is his closest friend. Benedict was like his right arm. And I say, do we worry about that? Do we look for applause? Do we wonder how our, what we are saying or believing or how we live, if it's going to be received well or not? He says he acted according to his faith and his convictions, but he was always ready to take the blows. Wow. He said, I couldn't, and I wasn't supposed to imitate him. But I did try to carry out his legacy and his work forward the best that I could. I am certain his goodness accompanies me and his blessing protects me. His devotion to Mary showed us how to willingly dedicate our lives to Christ. It became ever clearer to me over time. John Paul II is a saint. End quote. And I would add, Benedict XVI is saintly, a man of such incredible deep humility and wisdom who certainly bore heroically some of the most vast misunderstandings and, and tremendous sufferings for his incredible intellect. Much of what he said and was raked over the coals forever about is now playing out if we pay attention to what's going on in the world. He was a prophet. But prophets aren't liked, are they? They tell us where we're headed and we like where we're going. So they just need to drop off the face of the earth because we know deep down they're right and time will prove it. And like any other hero, he will never be appreciated enough in his lifetime either. But he doesn't wait for the applause either. 
My second choice is Pope Francis. In a beautiful homily he gave on the gospel of the healing of the paralytic in John 5, he quotes, Courage, child, your sins are forgiven. He pointed out what we all know. This paralytic wanted to be, for, wanted to be healed physically. And so the scribes accused Christ of missing the point. Listen, God, can't you listen to anything? Can't you figure out? He wanted physical healing. You who, you know, what is your problem? He doesn't care about his sins. And in fact, you're a blasphemer because you can't say, only God can say that he forgives sins. So as a blasphemer and as one who doesn't get it, you are just a loser, Christ. So say the all-know-it scribes. Francis continues, it's a sign that Jesus knew the real ills of life. And he says, the most profound miracle will always be the forgiving of our sins. We talked earlier today about forgiveness and why it's difficult. It almost takes a miraculous grace to do it well and a deep, deep humility. Francis says, this reconciliation is the recreation of the world and the most profound mission of Jesus, the redemption of all sinners. Jesus does this not with words or gestures. He doesn't walk along the street and say things. He does it with our human flesh. Jesus' flesh is our human flesh. That's how he heals us. He took this stuff on. It's incredible. God took this stuff on. Imagine the incarnation. And he says, because as God, he wanted to heal us from within. And going on with that, um, all of us know the great Father McConey, whose name has come up so many times, I'm getting a little bit tired of it, but I'll have to tell him that. <laughs> so we know him and love him, and uh, I think his incredible mind is matched only by the depths of his huge, endless heart. But he took this very same uh, thought and quotes G.K. Chesterton and says about the irony of life. He says, there's nothing that so strikes men with fear as the saying, we are sons of God. And he says that statement is terrible because it's true. And it's ironic because there's nothing more contradictory in us than dreading our sanctity. And it took me a long time, but he gave this in a retreat for our sisters at the mother house, to really kind of understand this, because why would anybody dread to become holy? What, what is he trying to say there? And why is this paralytic afraid of holiness? And he talks about John Paul II choosing with strong advice to say, be not afraid, open the doors to the Redeemer, which is be not afraid of your own holiness, of the holiness to which God is calling you. Open the doors to the Redeemer. So why would we be afraid? Because we fear the failure of our weaknesses. We fear that we could fail that we maybe 
won't be as great as God wants of us. And so he says, but in reality, it's our weaknesses that draw God's heart to us. You know, again, we've heard it before. If we were perfect, we would need no Savior. You know, it's our illnesses, it's our lameness, our illness, our our deformities. They're just like, they're like magnets to the heart of Christ. He wants to be there to fill that space that we need filled. And it's a part of the Christian paradox that our bruises and scars and wounds cannot only be transformed when given to Christ, but powerful channels of drawing others to him. Are you going to follow a proud person to Christ, or are you going to jump in the footsteps of a humble person? Which one's going to pull you, you know? And then I have one more example, and this one is a woman, and she's uh, from our third millennium, Chiara Corbella. She was born in Rome in 1984 to very well-to-do parents, and they had a deep faith. And when she was 18 years old, she knew her vocation was to get married, and all she wanted to do was find the man and, you know, in the right timing, begin her family. And so she makes a pilgrimage to a Marian shrine with this intention, and soon thereafter she meets Enrico Petrillo, and in 2008, a while after that, they got married in Assisi. Within a few months, Chiara is ecstatic to find out that she is pregnant. The first ultrasound, however, revealed that the top of her daughter's skull was not formed, anencephaly. And the doctor said there's no chance of survival after birth. But it was Chiara who comforted her doctor and said, but God never makes a mistake. And the only thing that she feared was to tell her husband how he would react because of their great joy in the pregnancy. And when she did, she said, he hugged me and reflected, she is our daughter and we will keep her just as God made her. She continues, we cried a lot together, but the pregnancy was a very blessed time. And upon the first glimpse of her daughter, she said, I know we will remain together for all eternity. The little girl, Maria Grazia Letizia, Mary Grace Joy, lived 30 minutes long enough to be held, kissed, loved, baptized, and sent on her way to heaven. Enrico would later write, each person has a mission. Maria Grazia's fulfilled hers quickly on earth. But she continues to work for us here. And there's a mystery in every heart that no one knows but God. We often want to be the Lord of our lives, to plan everything as we would like it to be. And we run from the cross in which he has asked us to carry. But God knows best. We discovered in our sufferings one thing. We really love God. Wow. In God's goodness, they did not have long to wait for a second pregnancy. And hopes ran high as Chiara received the ultrasound until the following one was viewed. This child had no legs. 
Another month of gestation revealed a multitude of life-threatening abnormalities. And the doctor, Saltranato, said to Chiara, I've never met anyone, he said about Chiara, I've never met anyone who so felt the love of God the Father. He's the best father, and she knows it. Her reaction baffled me. With tears, she said, God loves our child, and so do we. And friends, interestingly, began to kind of withdraw from the couple, saying, maybe you all, maybe it's this a result of your genetic problems, or maybe you have sinned and God is punishing you, or something, there's something strange going on here. So their sufferings were multiplied over and over instead of being supported in their sufferings. And Davide Giovanni was born June 24, 2010, and lived for 38 minutes, which was long enough for baptism and, again, a lifetime of love. Enrico quietly pondered upon their son's death. God is giving us another dimension of life, and it's called eternity. Third time, soon thereafter, pregnancy occurs again. And Chiara goes to the doctor, and this one is a healthy boy, and they name him Francesco. Their joy is abundant. Five months into the pregnancy, she notices a painful, persistent sore on her tongue, and tests reveal carcinoma, a very rare, aggressive type of cancer. Rather than terminating the life of her child by taking immediate chemotherapy, she waits out the pregnancy, and on March May 30th, 2011, their healthy son was born. But by this time, the cancer had taken over Chiara's body. She eventually loses control of her muscles, and despite radiation and chemo, uh, she goes blind and she has compromised breathing. And a few hours before she died, Enrico, beside her, watching his beloved wife suffering in agony, quotes Jesus quietly, my yoke is easy and my burden is sweet. And he looks at his wife and he said, is Jesus's cross light? And she smiles and whispers, yes, it is light and it is sweet. It's easy for me. I'm going to our two children in heaven. Then turning to their little infant, Francesco, She says, I'm going to heaven to take care of Maria and Davide. You stay here with Dad, and I will pray for you there. More than 1,000 people came to Chiara's funeral on June 16, 2012. Now, get this. This is two and a half years ago. You know, what were we doing two and a half years ago? June 16, 2012. In Rome, presided over by Cardinal Bellini, And Chiara asked to be buried in her wedding dress, a bride awaiting the Lord with her lamp burning. She specifically desired that no one bring bouquets of flowers, but rather potted flowers, she said, placed around her grave with the hope that each family would take one home with the remembrance that life is a gift. 
So the verdict is out. Do you agree with me that if tempted, everyone can become a hero? St. John Paul the Great, James Foley, Stephen Sotloff, Chiara Petrillo, and many others could have given in to temptations to self-pity, to despair about their weaknesses and the difficulties life was throwing at them. They could have given up in the face of seemingly insurmountable difficulties and just quietly preserved their lives. But they weren't satisfied with the status quo. They believed in their need to always give of the extra share to others. And they dared to trust. In the words of Mark Twain, if everybody was satisfied with himself, there would be no heroes. If everybody was satisfied with himself, there would be no heroes. It's precisely where we find ourselves the most lame, blind, deaf, dumb, in our own dissatisfactions and wounds and temptations that we find the call to authentic conversion, courage, heroism. And I want to end our reflections this evening before Eucharistic Adoration with a thought given by Felix Adler, a German-American professor of political ethics in the mid-1900s. And he says, the hero is one who goes through the dark places of life and lights the torches so that others can see. And he continues, the saint is the one who goes through the dark places of life, himself, herself, a light so that others can find the way. Thank you.